So the point of this first lesson is to talk about, obviously, our confession of faith. Um, we wanted to do this series as a means of making sure that all of our people in the core group were on the same page so that we had not just a, a common statement in our documents that kind of sit there and are disused. Because how it works in a lot of churches is that there is a formal statement of faith that everyone on paper believes, but it's not really any real part of the life of the church. It's just kind of a formality that a lot of people don't interact with. It's not actually a tool for teaching or a measurement for the life and practice of the church. So part of what we want to do and part of who we want to be as Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church, as a confessional church, is to be very forthright with what we believe and why we believe it, but also to be able to present positively this is what we believe the scripture teaches in a summarized fashion. That's the use of a confession. And so in this first lesson, I'm going to talk about the history and the use of the London Baptist Confession and about uh, how we got it to where we have it today and why we still use this old confession of faith. Because there are a lot of objections that come to using a confession of faith. A lot of different movements in the last two centuries would object to any use of creeds or confessions as, as limiting. You may have heard phrases like, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> the, the mentality that a confession of faith that, that you have to submit to, that you have to subscribe to, undermines biblical authority. That's what people would object, is if you have this other standard than just the Bible for what you believe, then isn't that undermining the sufficiency and authority of Scripture? So that's the first main objection. The second being that, that subscribing to a confession undermines Christian liberty or church autonomy. That if you, are, if you are calling individuals in your church to believe and abide by a man-made confession of faith, then you're imposing that on their Christian liberty, that you're imposing this as an issue of conscience. Or that, uh, that as a church, why should a church adopt a confession of faith together? Isn't that imposing on the autonomy of the local church? So in some ways, there are, there are positive motives behind those objections. You know, we don't want to undermine Scripture's authority. We don't want to impose man-made rules and restrictions on individual consciences. We don't want to impose onto autonomous local congregations what God has not imposed. But I think that those objections miss the point of why we have a confession of faith and how a confession of faith can be used healthy, healthily, um, well, helpfully, and biblically even. Because confessions of faith, at least as we use them as a Reformed Baptist Church, are subordinate standards, meaning that there's something that we hold people to in a certain sense and in a certain way, but not in any way that subverts the authority of Scripture. That even as our, our confession states, the first sentence is that Scripture alone is the only infallible, inerrant, inspired, authoritative rule for all faith and practice in the Christian life. And so to in any way take the confession of faith and place it over the Bible is actually to go against what the confession itself says about itself. And so we are in no way subverting the authority of God's word 
but rather acknowledging that God's Word is true and authoritative, it is inspired, it is His rule for our faith and practice. The problem is, is that each of us have to interpret Scripture, each of us have to determine how we would apply Scripture in different contexts. Everyone has a creed or a confession. Everyone has a summarized understanding of what the Scripture teaches. The question is, is that something that is written down so that it can be cross-examined, so that it can be tested against what Scripture actually says? Because if you just have your own confession of faith in your head, that you're identifying with the Scripture itself, I just believe the Bible, well, if you say you believe the Bible, and I say I believe the Bible, and we disagree about what the Bible teaches, then we have to come to some sort of agreement about what Scripture actually teaches. And so it requires us to have explanations about what we believe the Scripture teaches, especially in a day when there's a lot of disagreement, even amongst professing Christians, about what the Scripture says and what the Scripture would have us do. So we believe the Bible. We are a Bible people. We are a sola scriptura people. We believe that Scripture alone is our authority for faith and practice. But a confession of faith answers the question, what do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe the Bible says? What do we believe that God, through His Word, would have us do? And secondly, that confessions are meant to be unifying documents. That they are something that we come together to say that we as a church believe God would have us believe this. That this is a summary of our commitments for faith and practice. That here's what we are presenting, here's what we are saying together about our faith and our, our convictions. Because that's what confession means. It means to say something together. It means to publicly profess that us as a local church believe this to be faithful and true according to God's Word. So it's never ever meant to supplant or to replace God's Word as the ultimate authority in our lives. It's only meant to be a teaching tool that unifies us around a common confession of what we believe Scripture to teach. And if we ever cross that line as a church, then we need to be corrected for it. Then we need to be brought back into alignment with what God's Word says. Because we're not adopting the confession of faith and saying that we're going to impose it onto Scripture. We're only adopting this as a confession of faith because we believe it to be a faithful summary of what Scripture has already said. So it's meant to be a unifying document. And in no way is it, is, is it either expelling people from the kingdom of God. It's not impinging on your Christian liberty. Because no one is forcing you to join this church. No one is forcing you to sign on to this document. No one is forcing you to become a member of this local church. If you can't in good conscience say that this is what we believe as well, then there may be other churches that would be better for you to be a member at. So to not say that, uh, to say that you aren't in full agreement or you won't be willing to submit to our confession of faith as a church isn't us saying that you're not a Christian. It is us saying that this is, the dividing line, this is the, uh, the definition of our faith, our understanding of Scripture, and that if you have a different understanding, then you may, or may be better served in being in another place with people that you agree on, on substantial issues. So it's meant to be something that unifies local churches together. 
Because again, every church has a confession. A lot of times it's an unspoken thing that's just kind of assumed and you're not allowed to disagree with it, even if it's not what your church formally says is their confession of faith. We want to be forthright with what we believe and why we believe it, so that it can be tested, so that it can be measured, and so that we can be honest as well. We never want to present a false face to people coming into the church. Like we can kind of sneak them in and get them to commit, and then later on down the line say that this is what we actually believe. That's, that's cultic behavior, or that's dishonest. That's not what we want to be about. And so for us to adopt a confession of faith, specifically the London Baptist Confession, for us to use that as our confession, for us to subscribe to it, means for us to corporately adopt it and say that our identity as a Reformed Baptist Church is defined by this summary of Scripture. That when we subscribe to it, meaning literally that we write our names under it, is to give our approval that I am willing at the very least to submit to the teaching of Scripture according to this summarizing document. Because that's what is required of, of members in a confessional church. Those who would be officers in the church, who would be leaders, who would be teachers, who would be pastors, elders and deacons, those are the two offices of the church, they would be charged to teach in accordance with the church's confession of faith. But that doesn't mean that all of the members in the church have to entirely understand and agree with every jot and tittle of the confession. Because there may be people who come into the church who are still growing in their understanding of certain areas, who are still working through specific issues, who may be having trouble with some of the things that the confession addresses. And that's not going to be an absolute bar to fellowship. So if you come in and you say, well, I'm not sure about how the covenants relate in God's unfolding story of redemption. I'm not sure about what it says about uh, how we should describe our worship in the new covenant. And small issues, not small issues, important issues, but places where you're still working through things, unsure of things, or you might prefer a different use of language. That's not going to be a bar to fellowship for people who seek to be a member of this church. What they must commit to is to be sweetly submitting to the teaching according to this document. So that if you come into the church and if you have disagreements, you can be a, a true believer with some secondary, third-level disagreements and still be a, a member in good standing of this church. But the problem is, are you going to be contensive? contensive? Are you going to be uh, divisive? Are you going to be bringing discontentment into the church about those disagreements? Because if someone comes in and they want to be a member, but they believe that speaking in tongues is mandatory for Christians, and they're going to come in and they're going to cause a fuss and believe that our church has to change our doctrine, and they're going to argue and cause division and anger and strife, then they are not going to be welcome here while doing that. Our church is adopting this as its statement of faith. That's not meaning that it's an infallible document, but it is a summary of what we believe. And so for someone to come in and start throwing chairs and causing arguments and dividing the church over disagreements, that's going to be a bar to fellowship. So that's what the confession is supposed to do. It's supposed to unify people. It's not meant to divide because truth unites people. We're called to be unified together in the truth and in love, not one thing to the exclusion of another.
And so we have as well uh, that this is something that comes along with the ancient summary of our faith. This is something that has been done throughout all of church history, that we believe that we have a, a duty to summarize our faith well, that we have our duty to proclaim what we believe and why we believe it, and that through the history of the church, there has been you know, plenty of, of ways that this has been done, even back to the, the simple foundational Christian claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Caesar is not Lord, the emperor is not Lord, that Jesus ultimately is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is a confession. That is a creed in its simplest form. And so as the church had its, its completed Bible, as its full understanding of the faith, as the church had all of God's word written down and inscribed and preserved for them, it became necessary very early on for them to make statements about what they believed their scripture to teach. We have uh, different doctrinal controversies in the early church as early as the mid-second century about the nature of God and the person of Christ. And we had different heresies and false teachings that were dividing up the church. So the church had to come forward and present positively what interpretations of Scripture were faithful and which were unfaithful. They had to make a clear defense of the truth, which is why having a confession of their faith was necessary. The earliest one that we still have preserved for us is the Apostles' Creed, which the earliest forms of it we have around from 200. It's an ancient summary of the apostolic doctrine that we believe as Christians, that if someone doesn't believe in the, the statements confessed in the Apostles' Creed, if they don't believe in Father, Son, and Spirit, in these core elements of the faith, they can't rightly call themselves a Christian because they're not rightly believing what Scripture teaches. And so we have through the history of the church at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and in Constantinople where they came together to defend Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, where they came to present formal definitions of their faith about the Trinity, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. At uh, Ephesus and Chalcedon, how they came to present positive defenses of Jesus Christ as both God and man, one person and two natures. And they had to continue to refine and to explain and further apply the scriptures in the face of new error as it came along. And so to jump ahead a thousand years to the Protestant Reformation, there had been different splits through the church, like the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church, which split in the medieval period. But when it came to the point of the Protestant Reformation, these groups that were being driven out of the Roman Catholic Church because of their defense of biblical doctrine, like we are saved by grace through faith in Christ to God's glory and according to Scripture, they had to positively present the faith that they were confessing as opposed to what was being taught by the Roman Catholic Church. And so it starts with, for instance, the Augsburg Confession that the Lutheran churches following Martin Luther in Germany were being called on. Okay, if we're not going to be a, a Catholic country, the emperor was saying, then, then what are we going to believe? We have to have a formal explanation of our faith. And so they took Martin Luther's catechism, his teaching tool for the churches, and a couple other documents, and they put that forward as their confession, the Augsburg Confession. 
The Swiss Reformed churches had to do the same thing. The Belgic Confession of Faith, Heidelberg Catechism, these were their summaries of what they believed the scripture to teach and the things that they were going to hold their ministers accountable for teaching. In the Church of England, you had the 39 articles that as that church broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, they had to present 39 paragraphs summarizing their faith. Uh, you had further on uh, when the English church, the Anglican church, got, came out of power through some political circumstances, they called a group of people to Westminster Abbey in London to revise the 39 articles. And eventually they said, we're going to start over and draft a whole new confession of faith. And this became the Westminster Confession of Faith with its shorter and its longer catechism. But in this as well, this was coming out of, of the Puritan movement in England. These Protestant and Reformed believers who believe that Scripture must be pure, that God desires pure biblical worship. And so part of this movement was that these Puritans, they came together to draft this confession of faith, and most of them were what we would call Presbyterians or Congregationalists. There were some Anglican theirs. But there was another group that came out of this Puritan movement, the Baptists. We put Baptists in the name because that's definitional of who we are. We are a group of, of Protestant and Reformed and Puritan-minded believers who also believe that the ordinance of baptism is only for those who have professed faith in Christ. And so they distinguished themselves, still being in this stream, but they had to present their own understanding of the faith. They had to present their own confession. And so while the other ministers were meeting in Westminster to draft the Westminster Confession, there were Baptist pastors who submitted their own confession of faith to Parliament to say that this is what we believe. It's not like, like all of the, the false charges that have been brought against our churches. This is what we believe to be true, according to Scripture. So that was the first London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so there were other groups that did similar things, like the Congregational Churches. They drafted their Savoy Declaration, which took the Westminster Confession, that Puritan document that they all had gathered together to write, and they reissued it with a couple alterations because they had a different view of the church. They weren't Anglican. They weren't Presbyterians. They didn't have bishops. They didn't have presbyteries. They believed in the autonomy of the local church. And so then the Baptist churches in London, uh, which are our spiritual forefathers, so to speak, they took that document, they used that, they used the, the First London Baptist Confession of Faith, they used these as, as reliable biblical guides, although they had their own articulations of these things. But it became necessary in 1677 that these Baptist churches had sent out a missionary to plant a church, and this missionary, Thomas Collier, had started to depart from biblical Christianity. He didn't just depart from their confession of faith. He started to deny the Trinity. He started to deny our salvation in Christ, as the church has always understood. He started to teach all sorts of different crazy doctrines that were contrary to God's word. But he defended what he believed from Scripture. And they argue that we sent you out with the authority of our churches that you would teach according to our confession of faith. And you're not just going against our confession of faith, you're going against God's word. And so 
they set out to defend the truth by setting forward a, another group of guys who would take the confessions of faith they had, they would reissue another one to further defend the truth, to articulate biblical doctrine as they understood it. And so you had in 1677, uh, two guys were set apart by that association of Baptist churches, Nehemiah Cox and William Collins, and they edited together a new confession of faith based on the Westminster and the Savoy Declaration and uh, their own First London Confession of Faith. And they presented this new confession, which would come to be known as the Second London Baptist Confession, as an articulation of what they and their churches believed to be biblical, that it's what defined them. So they were distancing themselves from Thomas Collier, saying, he does not represent us. He is not being biblical. Here is what we believe as Baptist churches. And so they presented this. And uh, a few years later, when the Edict of Toleration was passed, when they had the legal right to gather as Baptist churches, non-Anglican churches, in 1689, a hundred of those London Baptist churches gathered to officially adopt the Second London Confession as their statement of faith, as what would mark them off as a group of churches that believed a common confession. And so that's why it's commonly called the 1689, because that's when the confession was adopted formally by this group of churches. And so through its history, the Baptist Confession of Faith has served as a supplement to the scripture's teaching to help us have a common understanding of the faith and a measure that we can measure against false doctrine or false teaching and unbiblical faith and practice. It was something that was meant to unify these churches together and mark off what they thought were non-essential issues and essential issues. The confession doesn't address everything it possibly could, but it addresses the things that they thought were necessary for churches to be in healthy cooperation and things that were necessary to keep a local church knitted together by faith and practice. And so you have historical examples of men like Charles Spurgeon and his church, which adopted this confession of faith, that he said that this was a, a useful tool for the instruction of children and families, that it was a, a sweet guide to uplift the soul, that it was something helpful, useful, and biblical in helping us to place our churches on a firm foundation, that as we confess to believe in God's word, we are summarizing what we believe through a statement of faith, through a confession of faith. And so even in, in the uh, opening preface to the Baptist Confession, they go through, they talk about that they don't have an, an itch to clog religion with new words. They're not trying to be original. They're using these other documents so that they can keep themselves within a faithful stream of believers who have passed the true faith down through history, that they desire to avoid unnecessary contention between their churches by presenting their faith in the open for everyone to see and read, and that they wanted this confession to help serve family worship as well, that individual families would say, here's what our church believes. So let's study the scriptures. Let's look through how it summarizes our faith so that we can all understand and worship as well together. And they conclude by this, that we conclude with our earnest prayer that the God of all grace will pour out those measures of his Holy Spirit on us, that the profession of truth may be accompanied with a sound belief and diligent practice of it by us, that his name 
May in all things be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That the end of us having a confession of faith is not to divide from other churches. It's not to keep people out that we don't like. It's to unify around a common confession to glorify God together in the way that we best can as a local church. So that is why we have the one about this confession of faith.